Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. How are you? am here. I'm doing great now. Thank you. Good. Now. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Backstory. So um, how, Jen, how is your summer going? How how are things? Uh, I'm doing great now. (laughs) Uh, I I think we were going to talk about summer vacation plans. So I'm sorry, you go first and I'll talk about how my summer vacation went. How's that? No. So what about you? No, no. Just tell your disaster story. Okay. Jen, did you have any travel plans that just fell to pieces? Um, I had a fantastic trip to Spain. Um, Anyone who follows me on my personal Facebook uh, probably has seen some of this. So this is old news. But uh, I took my husband to Spain because it was a milestone birthday for him and he's retiring from the military. And we had a wonderful trip. We went to Madrid, we went to Valencia, and then we went to Mallorca. And on our very last day, we climbed to the top of the Palma uh, Cathedral and I went, I don't feel good. And I sat down and I collapsed. Mm. And it turned out that my uh, small intestine had burst. Gross. And which is, super fun to have happen but also super fun to have happen when you say you collapse you just have like intense pain or what happened yeah i was just like suddenly in a huge amount of pain i mean i sat down i was like sitting down at the time were you just walking or did you like were you doing jumping jacks or sword fighting i mean i had definitely just climbed the 140 Mm -hmm. spiral stairs to the top of the cathedral um but that meant i was at the top of 140 spiral staircase stairs right so they had to call an ambulance, which was really fun. And the rescue EMTs had to climb to the top of those 140 spiral stairs and actually evacuate me down said stairs, which was really fun. Um, yeah, so I ended up in the hospital in Spain for almost a week. Uh, it, uh, quite honestly, like they took amazing care of me. I'm doing great now, uh, feeling fine, back to normal. But I will say for any listeners who are like, wow, Jen sounds a little spacey during this the next interview. Um, <laughs> I had just come back like right before. So I, I was um, ju- just barely back in the United States at that point. So mm. that was my um, great early summer vacation. Uh, what, you, what about you? Before that happened, didn't you have like back to back other travel plans? How'd that go? Oh, yeah. So then I was supposed to just land in the United States and go straight to a surrogacy conference down in Florida. So that didn't happen because I was in the hospital in Spain during that one. And then I was supposed to go to this other amazing international surrogacy forum with my amazing travel companion, my sister. And my my husband thought maybe it was not a great idea for me to be traveling internationally so soon after I had had that happen so I did have to say no to that one too I understand there was a medical crisis but I still feel like you owe me some like fun international trip excellent trip yeah all right well so before we dive into the um (laughs) the interview here what I'll do is I'll say everybody go to Facebook to our group and put in suggestions for where I have to take yes. Ellen as to what it. the makeup yes. trip has to be. 
So, oh, um, oh, can we send something? I feel I feel like we should send some merch to like the winner. Ooh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so everybody go okay. out there. We'll we will remind in the in the closeout as well. We'll <laughs> by the time we get to there, by the time you've listened to this interview, we will know what we will send you afterwards when you suggest. So in the meantime, doc, listen to the amazing, amazing Dr. Bindeman, and we'll we'll be back on the other end. Welcome, Dr. Julie Bindeman, back to the show. Dr. Bindeman is a reproductive psychologist, and this is her second time. So we highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 136. What do we say? 36? 136. 136. 136. So, Julie, if you don't mind, I would love if you would at least give like a short outline of your own personal story, and then listeners can go back to hear like, the ins and outs and the depths of what you personally have been to that have been through that have led you to work in this area to help others. So you want the shorter version than the, the whole shorter episode. version, the yes. recap, the <laughs> teaser, so the that recap. you can go back and listen. Not a problem. Um, so the really short version was uh, we experienced secondary infertility in the form of. Um, recurrent pregnancy loss that included two terminations for medical reasons. That's the short, that is the short, short version. Yeah. Oh, that's, I would say like, that's a, that is a very, I I will being in that position of having a very, very wanted pregnancy and facing having to terminate a pregnancy and how difficult that was and seeking like religious consultations. And it was just incredible to listen to your full story. But we are doing this follow-up because of the many, many issues in reproduction and termination of pregnancy, abortion, especially post-Dobbs. Where to start? What are you seeing as some of the biggest issues, biggest concerns, especially in ART, with the change in legal landscape? Uh, So I think geography matters when we're having this conversation and where you sit geographically or where, what laws impact you geographically really matter. Uh, Absolutely. I am sitting right now and I want to acknowledge that is I am sitting in the state of Maryland. It is a state that, um, I I almost feel like this is a very novel thing that it's doing, but rather than restricting reproductive rights, which feels like is like the du jour thing to do, uh, instead, Maryland is expanding reproductive rights. Um, And we'll just put it out there for the rest of us. So I, Ellen, am also sitting in a state, so I'm in Colorado, and we, instead of restricting reproductive rights, have gone the other direction as well and passed multiple laws to protect providers of reproductive care as well as trans um, to gender affirming care um, from any kind of legal prosecution or other consequences outside of the state for those other laws that might be they might be subject to or concerned about. Yeah. Jen, how about you? And I will acknowledge my privilege too in all of this that I am seated in Connecticut. And we also have an extraordinary protectionist laws about for both professionals and for people. And I mean, on top of, you know, there, there's a lot of levels of privilege to all of this too, especially in the ART community is that there's enough money and resources for a lot of things too, which in the abortion conversation is a big privilege conversation to have as well. So, yeah. but we can, I mean, that's a, that's a separate 
piece of this, but right now you're absolutely right. Acknowledging where people live in our geography is a huge, huge start in this conversation. In, right. Julie, can you tell me how you interact? Are you interacting with people from all different states in your daily life? Can you tell us about that? Sure. So as a psychologist, um, and again, in Maryland, where we passed PsychPAC a couple of years ago, I am considered to be a PSYPAC provider. Um, I want to also acknowledge there are two more states that just got added to PSYPAC as of yesterday. Oh, so wow. 38 out of 50 states are in PSYPAC, which is what are the two exciting. Do you know? Um, ready? Yeah. Wait, wait for it. South Carolina. Oh, wait. It gets better. Florida. Oh, in Florida. Is Texas already part of it? Texas. Oh, Texas oh, was a Texas been, Florida. yeah. The, yep, 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 uh, yep. Florida surprises me. I'm, I would think they would have their own special training about what is okay and what's not. Well, so that's the interesting piece. Anyway, I can go into a deep dive. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, if we're talking about what is this like as a provider, I need to know the laws of the places that my clients are sitting in. So it's not mm -hmm. only that, like, I know Maryland's laws, we're good to go. But also I need to be aware of what are Texas's laws if I'm meeting with a GC there or what are the laws in other other states that might not be um, historically affirming or acknowledging of reproductive rights. Yeah. Right. And, and I would say that has to, I, I think we're, we're skipping where we want to go, but it kind of fits in this moment of that how has Dobbs impacted how you practice? So besides doing research, right? You know, we talk about our privilege and like where we're located in our protection there, but like if you're practicing in states that don't have those levels of privilege, how, how has that impacted you and other professionals that you've talked to? So this is how we kind of look at it. And I think it depends too upon what is it we're being asked to do in our role as mental health professionals or psychologists? And there's certainly a lot we can do with people. But um, one of the things I do is I work with people that are engaging in third-party relationships or potentially gestational carrier intended parent relationships. And so because there's no pregnancy at that point, talking about a hypothetical abortion is legal in all 50 states because there's not an actual pregnancy for an actual abortion and actual action that is taking. So I will defer to the lawyer in this, this you know, in, in this space, but- We have one here, it's fine. I mean, yeah, I will say I was laughing the fact that you were like, I have to know the law in all the different states while the lawyers are the opposite. We're like, I know my state's laws. I will not advise you in any way. I will not pretend to know the laws in other states. So we, we are very clear, like, I don't know the laws in other states. <laughs> yeah. But it, I mean, the, the hypothetical from other, from, from your brethren is this idea of if it's a, if it's not a pregnancy yet, if we're talking about a hypothetical, then even if I was in Texas, like my colleagues that practice in Texas, it's okay to talk about. We don't have to worry about something like SB8, that bounty law, because it's hypothetical. We're not talking about actual action or anything that is happening. So it's not actual aiding and abetting because there's nothing to aid and abet. Um, so there, there's that piece of it. Now, if we're talking about actual pregnancies, this becomes much more challenging. And again, yeah. it depends on where you sit. And 
I have colleagues and, you know, I feel like they're really courageous because they're like, you know what, what happens in my treatment room stays in my treatment room. And I'm going to have the conversations that people need to have because it's happening in my treatment room. I have other colleagues who are like, how do I, like, what do I put on my website? Because I don't feel like I can say I work with abortion on my website because then am I going to get swept up in some of these mm. kinds of bounty bounty s laws? If people are looking to make a quick buck, does that somehow? Yeah, implicate? that feels like um, a fair concern to me from the lawyer perspective. Like that, absolutely, absolutely. So there's a lot of different things that we start to think about, right? And you know, our we go into our fields because we want to help people. Right. I think most medical professionals go into the field, whatever that chosen field is, because we want to help people. And it's really hard to be in certain places where we're muzzled around helping people. Because, you know, I if somebody needs an abortion in Maryland, I can give them resources. I can give them online resources. I can give them in-person in resources. And it's easy to do. And there's lots of places I can give them resources for. I can share with them via email links to different places, right? We can have the conversation in my office. However, I need to share that information, I'm free to do so. But again, I'm sitting in Maryland. So I was going to say, so then let's say your client now is in Texas, right? Then you have a different level of, and I mean, does that even mean that you have to like ask people where they are in any given moment like I mean I understand like when you're having a sit down like actual consultation but if somebody like emails you like how do you know where that email originated from yeah I don't I don't look into it in terms of like where did the email originate from because sort of going back to that where we started place is Maryland just passed a law that protects it protects professionals and one of the things that I did was um wrote a letter supporting that mental health professionals, I, I wrote a letter on behalf of the Maryland Psychological Association, that mental health professionals are included in this law because we can be impacted too. So we have a shield law in Maryland now, which is great and amazing. And so I think also because of that, I feel more emboldened to even have this conversation, right? Because who knows who's going to listen to this podcast? Um, uh, right, well, <laughs> everyone, we, I mean, I assume, but I hope so. Uh, so it's always been an issue with surrogacy and intended parents from the very early on to have in-depth conversations about what if something goes wrong? What if your life's in danger or what if there's some serious complication, no quality of life, how, or is everyone going to deal with it together? Is everyone's perspectives matching up? How have your conversations changed, if they've changed at all since Dobbs? Um, my conversations have expanded. So, of course, this is something I've always talked about. Um, I And actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Do you mind talking about what you do, what you did talk about before and what you did? Because I think for a lot of people, there's a lot of curiosity about what does this conversation entail and what makes it an appropriate conversation too? So, so even pre before pre expansion, right? Like what does this conversation look like for people? Yeah. So um, when I'm meeting with a prospective gestational carrier or when I'm meeting with a prospective intended parent and, and in the group meeting, like we're having the same kinds of conversation and 
I, I have over the course of doing this work for a while, I've started to frame the conversation as let's think about this in terms of what are your parenting boundaries, particularly if I'm talking to intended parents, if I'm talking to a gestational carrier, it's, you know, what, what are your moral and ethical boundaries? What is it that you can live with, with yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, you got to live with yourself and whatever happens, you got to live with yourself. Um, and so framing it from those different kinds of places. But we've always had conversations around abortion. And I talk about, I've always taken the tact, and I don't know that all my colleagues do it, I, but I talk about a first trimester abortion and what that might look like and what that might entail and why somebody might have a first trimester or an abortion in the first trimester. I talk about people who have abortions in the second trimester. And it's interesting because most, you know, if I just ask the question like, oh, what, you know, which trimester are you open to having an abortion? And most people are like, oh, just the first. And so then it's like, okay, well, let me educate you a little bit because a lot it's of things. Curious, are, I don't know. So what are those examples of first trimester versus second trimester? Especially in ART. Really. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. So I think um, for a lot of people, and, and this is always my favorite thing, um, when people do PGTA testing, there's always this thought of, well, I've done the testing, my embryos are flawless, they're amazing, there's nothing wrong with them, we don't need to do anything else in pregnancy, right? Like, And, and so one of the things I remind people is PGTA is amazing, and there's a 2% chance that you get a false result, right? That your, your what seemingly yeah. perfect embryos are actually not perfect, right? And I so- have, I have some good stories about that. that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talk about just in terms of what kind of screenings might happen in pregnancy. And I do encourage people, don't, don't forget the first trimester screenings just because you've done PGTA, because there is that 2%. And it, it can be good to know as early as you need to know. Um, but the other way that I frame it, too, is that it's good to have information so that you can make an educated decision, whatever that educated decision might be. So I don't try to come from this perspective of like, if there's something, quote unquote, wrong, somebody needs to terminate. It's OK, what what information do you need so you can make this decision? Um, so mostly in the first trimesters, it might be for growths that are happening that could be cancerous. It might be for chromosomal issues. That tends to be um, the other, other big big piece that, that we see in first trimester um, reasons that people will terminate for medical reasons. In second trimester, it might be, or, and you know, one other thing in first trimester, it could be hyperemesis. So I don't want to, I don't want to not talk about that because that is something that can be horrific for the carrier. Um, particularly if they're not able to get any nutrition unless they're hooked up to an IV. So, you know, thinking about that and how often, so, how long somebody can withstand that. And I've had clients who have had hyperemesis up until delivery, um, that it just, it was there the entire pregnancy. And, you know, they were in and out of the hospital getting infusions because that was the only way they were getting nutrition. So, People do terminate for that, um, and I just want to acknowledge that. Um, in the second trimester, it tends to be after perhaps it's the quad screen, which is a blood test. So that might look at different kind of neural tube issues. 
Um, or more typically, it's after the anatomy scan, or that's really the first chance that we get a, an opportunity to see what organs look like in a developing fetus. We get an opportunity to see, yep, the spine's there. It's just, it looks perfect. Okay, there are two kidneys there where they need to be. There's a liver, there's a heart. The heart has four chambers. You know, all of these pieces of great brain check, all these sort of checklist kind of things. But when things aren't arranged in the way that they're supposed to be, or when there are deficits in what is supposed to be there, well, that now gets us to a place where we need to have some really hard conversations. And then when I talk about third trimester, now we're also talking about things like help syndrome, like mirror syndrome, things that, again, kind of impact the carrier, that the only way to remedy them is delivery. Um, preeclampsia, hypertension, you know, we can get into things where the carrier's life is at risk. And the only way to save the carrier is to deliver. And if we're talking about something that's too preterm, it means that we might be putting the baby at risk as well. Um, but there are times in the third trimester because sometimes the anatomy scan, like the growth might be measuring just a little bit, like, or not even seeming to be out of the range of normal, but it doesn't mean that changes can't happen between the second and third trimester. So I think about a friend of mine and she just felt like something was off in her pregnancy. And by the time she was able to have a confirmatory scan, she was 35 weeks along and they learned oh, that her wow. baby didn't have a brain. Wow. And so, you know, wow. here she was needing to make a choice. Um, and I, I encourage people to read her story. She's been featured in all sorts of different magazines. I think Rolling Stone did a feature on her many years ago. But, you know, talking about someone who had... We'll, we'll had try to link to it in the show notes for, for those interested. Can you go ahead and share what she chose or how that Yeah, so she, she chose to terminate. And she lived in a reproductive positive state. This was 10 years ago that she made this decision. And um, her state couldn't provide an abortion for her. And so she had to fly out to Colorado. She like got the confirmation, called Dr. Hearn in Colorado on a Friday. She was going to be like 36, six weeks the next week. Like she had such little time to get the logistics going to be able to go to Colorado to do it. And she had to get the scan sent over and it was an ordeal, um, but she was able to go to Colorado and she was able to obtain an abortion in Colorado, um, wow. basically wow. at term 36 plus weeks. So, um, yeah. So hard. And, and you, anyway, so there's lots of reasons and I know it becomes really yeah. hard because people can't imagine well, what's the circumstance of doing it in the third trimester? What's the circumstance, you know, like, uh, but we won't find, it'll be fine. So these well, are hard conversations to have. I think people don't conceptualize how late sometimes some things happen too. You know, so that 20 week scan, all of a sudden when you ask somebody, well, I would only terminate in the first trimester, they don't conceptualize that that's well into the second trimester already. So they don't put the pieces together all the time as to what that actually means in there. So I walk people through it. 
Like I walk people through the different screening times and when they might get news that could change their mind. And then again, I've given them a framework, which is if they're intended parents, what are your parenting boundaries? What are your parenting limitations? And there might not be many, and that's great. Or there might be some, and that's great. Like it's not my choice in terms of what parenting limitations look like for people, but that's the framework that I like to think about it. Like financially, what are your limitations? Time, what are your limitations? What are your um, caretaking resources, right? How will you all get to have time to yourselves? Do you have other people that can serve in caretaking roles so that you all don't burn out? What might this be like for other children that you have or that you want to have in the future? Um, So, you know, thinking about it, trying from a very holistic point of view. Um, but again, none of these are easy decisions. None of these are easy conversations. So when I get to this point in the eval, like it, I have bummed everyone out. Yeah, for sure, I bummed out. You know, and then then I talk about too, like what happens if somebody becomes infertile as a result of a care, being a carrier or disability or death. And I'm like, all right, now we're done bumming you out. Let's talk about COVID. Um, uh, that's funny because I do mine off. Like when I do my actual match meetings, like, one, I'm learning so much from you. I'm like, okay, you've given me a new framework to have a, a much wider conversation. But we talked about COVID first and then we go into that. So I'm like, I was laughing. I'm like, all right. Like you have to have all the bummer conversations back to back to back, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But this one sandwiches it a little bit nicer. It's like, oh, COVID. Yeah, we can talk about that. That's easy now. Yeah. so Um, that was always the discussion how has it expanded now yeah so it's expanded because it now matters where the carrier lives and our expanded conversation is oh you're in texas okay abortion's illegal at all points in pregnancy at texas have you thought about where you might go Should you need to have an abortion in the first trimester? Should you need one in the second trimester? Okay, like there's Colorado, there's New Mexico, like, you know, and I'm sort of helping people geographically kind of figure out where is it that they can go. We talk about who will stay with your children should you need a termination. And and I think one of my favorite answers to this was, oh, we'll just all go together. And I'm like, "Mm, this is not a road trip. Like this yeah. is this is not a it's not a family fun activity. Yeah. No. So um, you know, and I suggested like maybe it would be important to have somebody stay with your kids. Or, you know, if it would be your partner, that's fine. Who else could come with you? Um, and now even in Texas too, like having to think about another question I asked GCs is do you know if your care provider what their stance is on a, on abortion? Would they tell you if there's a fetal anomaly and we're in a surrogacy pregnancy? Because if you have a care provider, and I know people who have had care providers that are pro-life care providers, they don't give them the news or they minimize it because outside of what they feel okay to do. So this this is real. And so I talk about, okay, there's a pro-life obstetrician and gynecologist website, see if your care provider is a member. Because if they are for this gestational surrogacy pregnancy, you might want to switch care providers. I have never heard that. So that's a real thing that 
OBs are not telling their patients about their condition? There are, I would say that there are extreme ones who are not. I don't want to misrepresent that this is all OBs, but I think too, when you're thinking about laws in Texas, it really does hamstring OBs because I can tell you there's all these things wrong, but there's nothing, I can't tell you what to do about it. I can't provide you care once I've told you the the bad thing. Yeah. So like, why stress you out? Just like, don't say anything. Well, I think people are afraid to have these conversations because what happens if their, their patient says, well, I need to terminate. How do I do that? And the response is, I can't help you. I can't have this conversation with you. I'm leaving the room basically. Yeah. I can't help you. So, that's where I think it gets really tricky. Um, and I think like, you know, the way of opting out is just not to say it. But I again, I don't want to misrepresent that this is happening all over. But I I know of people before Dobbs fell or before Roe fell that their OBs did not tell them there was a fetal anomaly and they had to wait till they went to an MFM and that's where they heard. Wow. wow. And then I... I have to, I'm, I'm laughing and I'm just going to put some levity in here because, you know, I have to like the sure. people, they can only hear us. Right. Um, Julie made a request that we're on video. So we're all videoing together. And what you can't see is the look of shock and horror on Ellen and I's face. And I'm just watching Ellen and I's faces just go like contorted, like, oh, my God. Ah. <laughs> so so everybody just have that visual in your head of the shocked look on Ellen and I. I mean, it's just mind blowing to me that your doctor is like lying Wouldn't to tell you, you purposely right? hi- hiding something from you. But yeah, um, purposely something. keeping a major medical diagnosis from you because they don't want to deal with the ramifications of having told you that, or they're minimizing it. I know a lot of people too, pre row falling, that their diagnoses were minimized. And so they were given a perspective of like, this is no big deal. And it wasn't until they got a second opinion that they were really told, this is a, t- a terrible deal. Who told you this was not a big deal? Um, so I think that's that's the other piece of it too. So that's another part of the conversation that we start to have. You know, we, we talk about the logistics of it. You know, I reassure GCs that should they need to leave their state that, that would be part of the contract that the intended parents would cover in terms of the financial costs. Um, you know, we, we talk about what it might be to live with that. And, and, you know, again, what it might be like to live in a state like Texas and you're friendly with your neighbors and they're seeing you all pregnant. And then the week after you're not pregnant and how do you navigate that? Um, I've actually thought of that just like in terms of surrogacy in general in those states mm -hmm. of that, you were pregnant and you come home and you don't have a baby. And I mean, already, right. Your neighbors are, if you didn't, if you just had like a casual relationship with them, they already don't know what happened. And does that leave you a little more open to those level of bounty hunter laws that they're like, Oh, well, obviously she went and had a, you know, an abortion at full term, but is is there obvious mental gymnastic leap because you didn't come home with a baby. right? Right. I can't conceptualize that there could have been some other reason. Absolutely. Maybe, you know, like we are living in a wild world right now. Yes, we are. (laughs) 
Um, so, so that, and, and I'm talking too to the intended parents, like what might it be like to support someone who not only has to have the abortion, but also has to travel out of state in order to do it, right? Like, let's think about all of that. And how might you support one another or not in mourning this kind of loss? And I was about to say, and talking about their grief and helping somebody else through their own grief as well, of carrying the burden of both both people's grief. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or where it gets really messy is, you know, I think people think about this in terms of absolute terms where, okay, let's talk about quality of life. And if the baby has no quality of life, we'll terminate. Well, what does that really mean? Right? Like when we're talking about quality of life, like what's the definition of that? How are you thinking about it? Because if we have intended parents and gestational carriers thinking about quality of life really differently, you know, if if quality of life for one party is that they can't be part of Mensa, but quality of life for the other party is like, hey, they're hooked up to machines. Like there's a big difference there. And obviously that's more illustrative than factual, but it's always yeah, good to use extreme definitely. examples i mean i was actually going to use the like my, the one that. i went to that i was like oh they can't be an athlete because they're missing a limb you know and like if your parents to them that was the most important thing ever you know like that's a quote quality of life issue for those specific people you know but but you're right i mean you can still have perfectly great life with only one arm you know like that's 100%. not different level of what quality of life means Oh, and you can be a Mensa without an arm. You so you're can. Very, um, very true. If, if you're ready, I would love to shift gears for a minute because I would love to hear your thoughts on your conversations you're having with clients about embryos. So also part of post-Dobbs is this fear, and we've definitely seen some indication of abortion laws not just being about a pregnancy that's established in a woman's body, but about an embryo that's been formed and whether it's okay to discard or otherwise cause something to happen to an embryo that's other than implanting it in a uterus. And when you're having conversations with clients, how is that new legal perspective shaping those conversations and those concerns? So... Most of the intended parents I'm working with are either from my region, although my clients in Virginia have gotten a little freaked out about IVF because they're like, ah, should we move our embryos? And I'm like, not yet. You're okay right now, but keep an eye on it. Um, You know, I, I mean, I think about people in Louisiana. You can't safely store embryos in Louisiana. So all of these pieces become not so existential, like they become very much reality-based concerns and fears. Um, So thinking about disposition, which is also something I talk to people about just pro forma, and I start to frame it too in, in terms of the widest amounts of possibilities for disposition. So it's not only about you discard it or you donate. And I think a lot of times the conversation is a little binary around that um, because there's not a ton of places where you can donate for research. 
Um, I, I will say, and I wanted to throw a little bit in there because I think I was at, we were at Jefferson Infertility together and the they had somebody come up and talk about donating for research and that essentially right now it is impossible. You just, you can't, nobody is open for it. So everybody always is like, just donate them to research. It's not that simple. There is no just donate to research button. Right, right. And well, I will say often donating to research, at least like legally, sometimes we really mean donate for training. Like it's not straight discarding, but it's like so other embryos can train, but not true research. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's a great distinction too. You know, I think I think where psychologically it comes from is a place of not wanting the embryos to be wasted, you know, wanting some kind of good or secondary good to come from them, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I try to broaden the conversation to also think about what might it be like to have the embryos released to you if there's any kind of ritual you might want to do or a burial or ceremony or something that might feel like, okay, we're closing this chapter. Um, and then I say, you'll have to talk to your clinic about it because not all clinics will do it, but there is this idea of a compassionate transfer. And so it's clinic by clinic. And, you know, some clinics are, that's not something that they are, uh, is available to be done, but that's another piece too. So I think some of these things sort of skirt and for those that, I mean, I know because I've heard many talks on it, but do you want to share what compassionate transfer oh, is? Oh, sure. Right. So the idea of compassionate transfer, um, and, and I think this really works for people that are very, um, very connected to their religion and a religious point of view. And so the idea of a compassionate transfer is that the embryos get transferred into a uterus, but it's done during a time of the time, a time of the month where pregnancy is super unlikely to occur. Um, and so in that way, you know, there's sort of this feeling of, well, it's God's will, should it implant, but it's not going to implant. And so, you know, you're doing it with this idea of, we know we don't want more children, but if it does implant on that really, really offshoot chance that it might. Um, and then it feels again, like because it happened in a body, it was just an embryo that didn't take versus an embryo that was discarded or wasted or um, other ideas. I mean, for so many people who have been through so much on top of, I mean, there's so, there, there are so many costs in this and they're, they're like, and, you know, emotional costs, things like that. But that one, it, it feels so painful because there's a financial cost in that too, right? Like, so then you're paying a gigantic financial burden on top of an emotional burden as well to discard that way i mean it just that one it, it pains my heart a little bit i mean just because i mean i understand it's a great way for a lot of people but it, it it's so hard to swallow that you're going to have to pay yet again on top of all of the sting that you've been through related to your fertility journey in that way although i think like the the converse of it is you have people who've already paid for storage fees right and so like you know you get to a point of like how many more years of storage fees can i pay for and you know who is that serving for me to pay for a storage fee when i'm not and that's it's another option i give people is that they can infinitely pay for storage fees um you know and and i'm sure that there are people in their wills that leave their embryos to the next generation because they didn't want to make a decision um i imagine again these are not 
often cases, but I can't imagine that they're never cases. So I was gonna say, what is it? What happens then? This goes back to our like, can somebody? Oh, anyway, that's that's a whole different podcast all by itself. Never mind, not going there right now. My favorite topic. <laughs> I know. I like Ellen loves talking about embryo disposition, and <laughs> so no, no, I especially um, love posthumous conception issues. I think those are. I was gonna say posthumous conception yeah. is it. Um, so you mentioned religion a little bit, and I want to change that. So one, I'm going to do a very poor segue in this, in that you are apparently working on a book. Um, so we want to hear about your book, but you did talk about that you're you're writing very specifically a chapter about religion. So talk about your book and definitely tell us about re- religion. So it was... Um quite the shock to me when I was approached by a publisher and they said to me, we want you to write a book on abortion. And I'm like, me? Okay. Um, I can do that. Uh, And and then I'm like, what kind of book on abortion? And they're like, we want you to write a book about mental health and abortion, like mental health practitioners and abortion. I'm like, oh, that's a really good book. That's a really important book because we don't learn anything about this in grad school or even post-grad, unless we seek it out in very specific places, and it's hard to find those places. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll write it. And as I started thinking about it, I'm like, well, you know, one thing I know about abortion is that we are a really vibrant and multifaceted community. And there's so many different aspects of abortion that I would be reinventing the wheel if I decided to do this all on my own. And I'm like, I don't need to do that. And so I decided that this was better to be a collaborative effort. And I decided to be the editor of the book versus like the sole author of it all. And so I'm I'm so excited because I have this incredible team of authors that are so wide ranging in terms of what their areas of expertise are and their interests are and just where they come from. And so I'm really excited about putting this together for mental health professionals. And then you're like, hey, guys, don't worry. I'll take the easy chapter religion. I got right. Right. So I'm writing this chapter with a friend and colleague of mine who is a minister because I feel like we had to have some kind of religious bona fides to write it. Um, So I'm like, I'm not a rabbi, but, you know, I play one on TV. No, not really. Um, (laughs) So. She and I have been friends for a while. We're really fascinated about pregnancy loss and how that impacts religion. And, you know, I know that she is a huge um, reproductive justice advocate. And so I approached her about, like, maybe would she consider doing this with me? And she's like, yes, yes, yes. So we were talking about it. And I feel like the cop out in writing the chapter is sitting there and being like, Buddhism says this. And Islam says this, and Judaism says this, and Catholicism says this. We didn't want to do that. So that's just going to be a chart. We're like, yeah, that's fine. It's an easy chart. We, Not a big deal. Um, and instead, the way we wanted to frame it was really looking at what is religion and what is the purpose of religion and why is it that religion weighs in on this particular healthcare topic. And so some of the things that we're thinking about is you know, religion only exists if there are supporters of the religion. There are lots of religions over time that have died out because there are no longer supporters. We don't know about them or don't hear about them because guess what? There are no longer supporters of them. And so also if we're looking more at modern day religion, it is um, 
a bit of a capitalistic entity, right? Like there is a money to it, right? Right. Um, Yes. Churches don't come up just by themselves. We have to pay for them. And, you know, there's- You don't just water a seed and those mega churches just explode and the, you know- I mean, it can feel like that, but no. Um, So- so looking to it, like the profit motivation, and if there are more people in the religion, then there potentially stands more profit to it. And so again, it makes sense that abortion is a place where religion can take a stand. And not all religions feel this way. I think that's really important to note. But like religion can take a stand, which is, oh, we want to oppose this because we don't want to um, take away from per- potential future parishioners which are, you know, potential future, again, to be crass, dollars. So, you know, th- we're, we're coming at it, I think, from a really different perspective, but we also want to acknowledge in it that religion can play a really important role in how somebody discerns whether or not to have an abortion. And it can play a really important role, particularly for those that terminate for medical reasons in terms of healing and how they think about that and how healing can come from it. So religion doesn't have to be a source of shame. It can also be a source of strength. And so that I'm excited to be writing this chapter where we're talking about all of that complexity versus Catholicism says this and, you know, Hinduism says this. Well, and I think any of those where you say the X religion says Y, you can find any person that said, I talked to my my religious leader and they said this other thing instead because they just don't, they just, you just ignore that. It's okay. You know, like, so we've talked to so many people who have talked to one of their own localized religious leaders who have allowed them to do what they think is the right thing versus what is the dogma of the generalized over overarching religion so yeah so it's really hard to generalize of the the religion says x or y right right and and all i mean but you're right there's a part of it where the dogma of the religion says this but that doesn't mean that the the actual you know um those that are sharing of the religion necessarily adhere to that and you know like there's a reason that there's an organization called Catholics for Choice, but that's not the dogma of the Catholic Church. Right. And I would say Catholic was the big one that I always like think of in that, especially because dealing with surrogacy and things like that, that that's, you know, I, I get a lot of, well, the surrogate is Catholic. Are you sure she can, she's okay being a surrogate? And like, well, she made the choice already to get this far. So that means she she's obviously made some level of decisions in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Or IVF generally, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think about um, really Orthodox Jews, right? And what are the collection methods that they can do in terms of IVF, uh, in terms of semen collection? Because... You are do, not. do you want to talk about that since, since people can't like so so that I say just because just obviously you know we may know but not everybody else out there may know sure and and I had done a deep dive for another chapter I had written um, because of course it made so much sense to write a book chapter during the pandemic like when I was approached about it, I'm like oh my god I'll have so much time sure I'll do this and I didn't expect it to take double the time because actually it was a much deeper dive than I thought it was going to be. Um, But there are specific kinds of collection condoms that have some holes in them for 
orthodox men because there is this idea that you can't spill your seed unless it is in a procreative act um, which is kind of similar to catholicism and so using those special kind of collection condoms you can bring that to the clinic and then you have enough of a sample to use for whether we're doing a semen analysis or we're doing um IUI or IVF, then we have we have a sample for it. So um, it, it enables that off chance that procreation might happen because there are holes in it, not necessarily at the bottom because we want to keep the sample. Um, and, you know, we need to have the sample too. So so it's always interesting to hear some of the the workarounds and like, okay, how do we navigate this from a modern perspective with our ancient texts? So I do appreciate the creativity. Sounds very much like compassionate transfer. Like it yep. has this purpose, but kind of not really. Yep. Yep. Well, what other, before we close, what else is on your mind or what do you feel like is important to share on the topic? Are there other things you want to get out there? Yeah, I, I think, um, for people, this is a really scary time. So not even thinking about like where we are from our professional purchase, but for people, this is a really scary time because the laws keep changing. So at the time that we're recording this in the last two weeks, South Carolina passed a six-week ban and North Carolina passed a 12-week ban. These were two states that had previously, you know, three weeks ago had a 20-week ban. So, you know, things are changing really rapidly, and it means that there is no place in the Southeast, or I think almost in the whole South, where somebody can access abortion care um, past 12 weeks now. So, you know, the, the further South, I think now is Virginia, and Virginia is going to be on the chopping block is my concern. And so now we get to Maryland. Like, Maryland is now the furthest, the southernmost state in which you can access care after 20 weeks. Um, and so we're talking about huge financial issues for people. Again, this idea of privilege and where do you sit and where your state nice. is. Um, we're talking about access issues. And I don't even just mean like, oh, is there a provider locally? But I know that in my state of Maryland, there are providers. We, we changed the law last year so that Allied health providers like midwives um, and PAs and nurse practitioners are able to, to do parts of abortion care that they previously hadn't been able to do. And there's still not enough providers in Maryland, which means that people in Maryland are having appointments delayed, but people coming from out of state, it's taking time to have appointments too. And we know that there's more and more risk in pregnancy the longer you carry just inherent to pregnancy, there are risks, right? Just being pregnant is taking a risk. Even if you want to be pregnant, you're still taking a risk. And then we add in different kinds of factors like um, we add in race, unfortunately. And it's not that it is riskier to be of a race and be pregnant. It is riskier to be in America and not white and be pregnant. So I wanna be really clear when I say that, that pregnancy is not inherently different for people of color than it is for white people. But in America, it's different because the care is so different and because of our systems that we have in place and, and the perpetuations of those systems, that's what changes the care, not, not anything that is racial in and of itself. Um, so 
I think it's I my clients the first week that Dobbs was decided, they were all concerned about their embryos and what do I do about my embryos, particularly my, as I said, my Virginia clients. Um, so that's something that we're talking about, you know, talking about too, like where do you go for treatment? So, I mean, I have a good friend who lives in Louisiana. It's where she lives. She did not pursue treatment in Louisiana. She went elsewhere to pursue treatment. And again, this was before Dobbs, but she couldn't because she was in Louisiana. So, you know, like, again, the barriers that are existing and the constant, we don't know what's next. Like, I think that also is hard for all of us as practitioners is that we're doing the best we can based upon information that we have, but this information keeps on changing. Yeah. All right. Practicing in quicksand, right? That's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we so, so appreciate you coming back and talking to us about this. I amazingly important, but for a lot of people, very sensitive and difficult to, to be willing to be open about and, You've always been amazingly open and I, I love every second of it. So so we appreciate it. And I know others do too, because this is so important to open these conversations and, and keep having them. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thank you to Dr. Benderman for joining us again. And uh, again, we do encourage you to go back and listen to our prior episode, which was um, fantastic and really goes into her story in depth of what she's been through. And it's really, really touching, really moving. And um, I feel like there's so much to learn and grow from it. But on a happier note, going back to our intro. So our promise to whoever gives a great suggestion of where Jen is going to take me on a sister's (laughs) trip, um, we will send a merch item of your choice. So you can go on the merch link, choose a merch item, joggers a phone case a long sleeve shirt you've really got some amazing options a fanny pack yes. um and a mug item of your choice a mug yes item of your choice so awesome yes so uh, yes so send suggestions you can either send them via our facebook page you can call if you want and leave them on our hotline 303-997-1903 no matter what we will be very excited to hear from all of you and I'm sure in the future we will list out what some of the amazing suggestions were and let everybody know what the winning choice was and maybe even tell you about all the fun we had um, we in the meantime oh oh we could post pictures to our Facebook group why did not why are you smarter than me why did you think of that amazing yes <laughs> so um, really excited to have you all participate and tell us where in the world we should go um, but for now while we're collecting your suggestions, thank you to all of our team. Thank you to Tyler, to Melissa, to Amanda, to everybody that makes us sound amazing and brings you our incredible stories. And we are very excited to thank you for being with us and um, we'll see you next week.